Welcome to Meet the Pressers with Clint Macro and Matt Mallory. So today we have the opportunity to record with George Zimmerman. In 2012, George had a fatal encounter with a guy by the name of Trayvon Martin. Got an article. I met with him last October. Really wanted to talk to him and kind of see what his life's like now and, and find out the, the do's and the don'ts, the things that, that he, looking back in retrospect, uh, might have done differently. When you first told me about this opportunity, you know, I was kind of wondering, how do I approach this? You know, how do I approach this as someone that teaches defensive training, which the core portion of that is conflict avoidance. Definitely. But also, one of the things that we teach is we need to be prepared for dealing with that legal and that financial and that emotional aftermath. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to really kind of push that narrative as opposed to retrying the case. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macrow. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. This episode of Meet the Pressers is made possible with the generous support of Saber Red, Power Attack Flashlights, Lee Armory, and EZ2C Targets. Thank you. George, how are you, sir? I'm great, man. Glad to be with you guys. We all know what happened there in that courtroom, and, and you're a free man now because of what the jury found. What I'd like to focus on mostly is, could you give us some insight on what it's like to have, have survived that violent encounter, but also survived that legal aftermath? One of the things that we teach as defensive instructors is that our students need to not only win that physical encounter, and if they can do that by avoidance, that's ultimately the best thing, but they also need to be prepared for that that legal and that financial aftermath. And uh, that's something that I think you, you might be very well suited to uh, talk about here today. Absolutely. And um, I will tell you that I told Matt, as he wrote in the article, that uh, had I been not able to do it all over again, frankly, I wouldn't have left the house that day. And so like you said, avoidance, I know that's a different kind of avoidance, but altogether, I wish that day had never happened. And that kind of gives you, hopefully, a little bit of perspective into how my life is after the fact. Um, it uh, um, Touching on the financial aspect of it, I really had very little knowledge as far as self-defense, the, um, the aftermath of self-defense, very little knowledge about... Um, proficiency with the firearm i had a friend who was an air marshal who would take me shooting once in a while and then give me little tips one of those that may have saved my life that night was as soon as the threat's over and you're certain it's over holster your gun don't be holding your gun when the police arrive everything happens so quickly and it's impossible for me to be able to verbally articulate how time is manipulated when you're in that stress-induced situation of having to survive an attack, unfortunately use your firearm, and then just thinking comprehensively of what the next steps are. You know, um, my friend, the air marshal, told me little things like, you know, you want to make sure that the threat is over, but that the threat doesn't have backup coming. Mm -hmm. So be 
that, but also be cognizant that the police are coming. In my situation, I knew the police were coming. I was 100% certain the police were coming because I had called them. <laughs> I had called them to deal with the situation before I would have to uh, get involved. So in a way, that was a type of avoidance. The financial aspect of it, I had no clue what it would cost me. And as you guys and, and your viewers, your audience that may watch this or hear this, they may know that I didn't know on that night or prior to that night. I was 100% innocent. I mean, it was from anybody, any self-defense, anybody with any legal or law enforcement background saw. It was a clear-cut case of self-defense. However, it ended up costing me, in the long run, it was over $3 million. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you're talking about a 28-year-old young man who was making about $60,000 a year, supporting himself and his wife, putting his wife through nursing school, and uh, ha- having to face, you know, even the million-dollar bond is ridiculous. Now, thankfully... And, and I know there's some controversy surrounding some of them, but I do believe in the self-defense insurance programs. I do believe now with a little bit more education, I have learned that if you're a firearm owner, but if you invest in a $500 gun, invest in $500 in training, but also invest in one of these courses. I myself am a, a big believer of uh, the Masada U programs. I've attended them uh, with attorney and uh they're they're great programs um where a lot of people may have qualms about the price believe me it is not a drop the bucket (laughs) if you're faced with a three million dollar legal bill i know in our meeting when we we had uh had dinner that night you know you had gone into you know what your life was like prior and you know everybody has some sort of level of, of uh, normalcy in their life prior to anything bad happening. And then once something bad happens, such as, as this, um, how, how did your life transpire from there seven years ago and, and, and that journey since then to get back onto some sort of, of normalcy? It, it, that's a great question. And really, the best way I can answer that is by saying it is absolutely a mixed bag. I've, it, it was such a polarizing incident in my case. And again, I want to stress to the audience, I, I believe what sets me apart when I do public speaking or when I go to classes, I attend classes and I speak to at, at them. I was not law enforcement. I was not military. I was just like everybody else in this world that was just trying to get by. A little bit of firearm education. Um, just knew that I didn't want to be a victim, but um, I didn't really have any formal training. And um, what I got was, or what I went through was so polarizing that I got to see the nastiest people with the nastiest comments and the nastiest attitudes towards me. And I also got to see some of the greatest Americans that came out and supported me and showed me that um, they believed in me. They believed in the Constitution. They believed in the judicial process. I, I mean, I got one of the greatest attorneys in America, bar none, Don West, who worked on my case virtually no cost. I mean, the man certainly, certainly did not profit off of me. Hmm. And that would not have been, I, I would have never been able to meet Don West or retain Don West if it wasn't for the publicity of my trial and if it wasn't for the outpouring of support 
early on, I was informed that people were making donations to a website, not mine. <laughs> and that frustrated me. I, I would say infuriated me because some of these people I knew were co-workers of mine, uh, friends of mine, and they said, hey, man, I hope you got the $20 I sent you. And I felt like a dirtbag because I thought, how many people have been sending me money and thinking I'm just some ungrateful guy not thanking them when in reality the money was never going to me. So I started my own website. That's when I decided to get in touch with Sean Hannity, let him know that my website was true and authentic. The outpouring of financial support was one thing that I want to touch on. The financial support, it's been reported, and I think we we raised over $300,000. What was phenomenal that was that most of it, I, I believe I don't have about 80% of it or more, was in $20 increments or less. Hmm. Just goes to show you that it was, I mean, all, all walks of people all across the nation uh, sending in, you know, whatever they could, whatever they wanted to. Um, and it was, it was not one donor that came in and wrote a check for $100,000. Just the working class American who decided that what they were seeing was wrong and they wanted to uh, put their money where their beliefs were and support me. Um, tying that back into what we talked about, unfortunately, if you, your audience members go through something I went through, they may not get the publicity of what I went through. They can't count on that as being their, uh, their windfall or their parachute if they're in that situation. I would never recommend that as an insurance policy. Um, however, to me, the greatest support that I received through that website was the notes of support from people. I had uh, people that said, hey, I'm a retired army veteran. I only have $100 in my checking account, but I believe in you and I believe in the constitution. I'm sending you $10. And man, that just kept me... I can't tell you how that kept me going. In fact, I remember I would print those up every day. I would dedicate that day in court to one of those supporters that had sent me one of those messages of support because of the publicity, because of the trial, because of what the media tried to make it out to be. I got to see the best. And unfortunately I get to see the worst of it. I still get, you know, obviously get death threats. Um, I had a man who was just so insane. The trial. He had never met me. We had never sat down and talked. There had never been any type of dialogue about, you know, his, his thoughts on the trial or anything. Unfortunately, he was so incensed that his brother actually sent me money through that legal defense website that he decided to shoot at me uh, <laughs> while I was to my doctor's office with the 357 Magnum coming about seven inches from my head. So, um, it's really, truly a mixed bag, guys. It's, uh, you, it's so polarizing. You get the two extremes. People either hate me or they love me. Going forward, I know that you've got, uh, there was a, a documentary about Trayvon that was, that was put together by, um, uh, who was it? That uh, unknown rapper there. What's his name? Uh, Jay-Z. Jay-Z. Um, he did a, uh, a documentary and then you also have a, a movie coming out uh, or at least uh, you were a subject matter expert for a movie based off of what, what had happened and that's coming out, correct? You know, I'll be honest with you. I didn't watch the documentary. I knew that it was going to be biased. Uh, they had contacted me several, several times 
they contacted my friends, my family members. They frankly harassed family members. Um, I, I knew that it was going to be biased and slanted. Um, Jay-Z and his wife had been so vocal and supportive. Uh, the Trayvon side of advice that I could give your audience is um, be careful who your friends are, who you consider your friends. A lot of people in that documentary that portrayed as my friend, that is one regret that I have going back and looking back on it. I would have been much more guarded with um, who I consider was my inner circle mm -hmm. during the trial, um, who I let into my life and my home. And um, unfortunately, many people, or I should say fortunately, many people won't be faced with the reality of not knowing who their true friends are unless they go through a situation like I did. Only trust your attorney and make sure it's an attorney you can trust. And so you said only trust your attorney and make sure it's an attorney you can trust. Is that? That's a t-shirt right there, yeah. right? Yeah. Is there any attorney you can, uh, attorney you can trust? <laughs> yeah, they're out there. They're definitely out there. This, this upcoming project is a completely unbiased project. It is not, um, I'm not starring in it. I don't have the uh, principal role or anything like that, but it is about the incident and it's goes more into the legal um, intricacies of the incident. And uh, I'll tell you, it's put together by a phenomenal uh, documentary maker and uh, he's done a lot of political documentaries and man, he dives deep and he gets into things that frankly, myself and my attorneys didn't have the time or the financial resources to get into. He has private investigators. He has handwriting experts. He's got uh, everything and wow. he put together a well-made project. And I'm, I'm really excited for that to come out. What does George Zimmerman do uh, these days to, uh, to take up your time and try to put the past behind you and, and move forward in life? The reality is I have learned that the most important thing in life is family. And I spend Amen. as much time with my family as possible. And that's the one resource that we we'll never get back is time. Mm. And I try and spend as many days with my family as possible. It's been a huge help in the healing process. The unconditional love of family is just tremendous. So I, I try and spend as much time with them. Uh, have a 150 pound Rottweiler that I love every day. So I just try to uh, you know go about as normal as possible. I am aware that my life may truly not be normal um, in the sense that I'll always have to wear a baseball cap and sunglasses, go to Walmart, or go have a meal with my family. But um, as long as I get to spend time with them, get to see them, uh, I'm happy. Watching the trial, being here in Pennsylvania and seeing everything unfold uh, through the media, I tried to keep a very open mind. As I said before, I believe that what we see in the media is largely half-truth at best a lot of the times. So I wanted to keep an open mind with that. And after the verdict, you know, uh, the verdict was what it was and you became free and that was justice served because we don't know what happened being on this side of the television and, you know, all that matters is what 12 people are convinced of in that courtroom. So I w went away from that feeling satisfied that justice was served. And then after, shortly after, you had sold your gun. And I kind of 
wasn't sure about how I felt about that. But when I read Matt's article, he had kind of made that make a lot more sense to me. So would it be possible for you to explain the thought process behind that and why you sold that firearm on, on Gunbroker? Absolutely, man. And, and that kind of is, is a good um, tie into what we were just talking about. I mean, t- about my daily life. Um, frankly, I would love to be working again. I would love to have a nine to five job. I would love to be contributing back to society. I'd love to be making an impact in the community. I'd love to be able to go back and mentor inner city youth again. Unfortunately, as we know, me driving to the doctor's office and getting shot at, I understand the hesitation of some employers where they say, you know, love to employ you. However, we don't want, you know, to attack, to attract negative attention. And I don't blame them for that. I get it. I'd like to think that in a perfect world, if I was an employer and I had a position available, I would say, you know, what? I don't care what the public or, and it's not the public, it's the naysayers, it's the loud squeaky wheels that get the media attention. But I would love to think that I would be a little bit different and say, you know what, I've made a good living for myself. I've made a great company. I'm going to go ahead and give you a chance to recuperate that normalcy in your life. I'd, so I, I think I'd be a little bit different, but um, I don't blame people that are hesitant to give me an opportunity or employ me facts of the matter are man i still live (laughs) i still had uh not so much attorney fees but i still had bills from the trial i had to make money and i get it man i get it believe me i got a lot of people who were even close to me who reached out to me and said i don't think this is the right move i don't think this is the best move selling the gun but um the reality is man i've got to eat and i've got very little very limited options. So it was strictly a financial decision for me. And uh, people want to say $250,000 is a lot of money. $250,000 over the last seven, eight years of my life, not that I sold it seven, eight years ago, but I mean, I had bills from seven, eight years ago, um, doesn't add up to a lot of money in the course of time. And uh, frankly, a lot of people made a tremendous amount of money exploiting me, exploiting mm-hmm. my name, my likeness. They don't suffer from it every day like I do. Just going out and walking the dog is a challenge being recognized. So that was a decision I made because out of necessity, financial necessity. And I, and I get that a lot of people didn't understand it at the time, but I hope that they do now. Um, and again, man, when you talk about even the million dollar bond, $250,000 is a drop in the bucket. I know for a little while there you were doing uh, art, artwork, paintings and such. Is, is that something that you're still doing or is that something that uh, you've put on the back burner? I, I do it more for myself therapeutically. It started as a therapeutic outlet, a way to express myself. I had never painted before the trial. During my trial, I actually met a wonderful local artist who taught me to paint. And... Um, he would sell them. He said, why don't you throw it up on the internet and see what it does? And it did tremendously well. Hmm. But it's weird. And the best way I can equate this was uh, you work on something, you pour your heart, your soul into it, and then you sell it and it's gone forever. And kind of like working on a, um, a hot rod with your dad, you know, and you hmm. pour your soul into it and then you sell it. You can never get that hot rod back. You can't get that right. time put into it with your dad you know so Mm -hmm. 
it got to the point where I said, you know what? I don't want to sell these anymore. So now I have a house full of my own. <laughs> we're looking at. Can you speak on some of the sacrifices that your family has had to make to uh, allow the family to get through this situation? And what has your family done to help empower the family as a unit to continue on? My biggest supporters, bar none, have been my mother and my father. I can't thank them enough. During my trial, it was very, very hard for them. Unfortunately, that disgusting human being, Roseanne Barr, decided to tweet out their address and cited mm. her, her followers on Instagram and Twitter to quote-unquote, go get them. Um, and they had to leave their home. And it was very difficult because we, we were a traditional family in the sense that I grew up with my mother and my father. And we were so fortunate and blessed to have my grandmother living with us. Um, and she lived with them when all this happened in 2012. And my parents had to up and leave their house uh, as quickly as someone who's facing a wildfire in California would have to get out of their home. I mean, they had to get out of there with basically what they had on their, their backs and what they could put in their trunks. And that was devastating to me. You know, I, I was younger. I'm obviously younger than them. And I could bounce around from place to place pretty much pretty easily, but for two senior citizens, one of whom is a 20-year-plus 20 20 veteran of the United States Army who's uh, in you know, poor health, and also having to move around my grandmother, who's, you know, she's 94. Um, oh, no. That was probably the most hurtful part of the trial because they didn't ask for this. They had no role in this whatsoever. And uh, without question, they were the most innocent victims in all of this. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's not said lightly, man. I consider myself a victim of the political manipulation, the media manipulation. But again, uh, my parents didn't want anything to do with this. They didn't seek fame. They didn't seek fortune from this man. They just had to bounce around from hotel to hotel and, uh, you know, at extreme, extreme financial burden to them, again, being fixed income retirees. You know, I, I still don't know where they find the strength to continue uh, what they do on a daily basis to maintain their privacy security. Unfortunately, they had to uh, show their identity uh, during the trial. They were asked to testify. They were subpoenaed, so they had to take the stand and show their faces and you know now they are easily recognizable uh in the public so they they go through a lot daily to maintain their privacy and their security which hurts me as their son tremendously my wife and i ended up getting divorced and i wholeheartedly believe that it was a product of the trial you cannot go through what i went through what my family went through unscathed you change in some form or fashion. I can tell you that my wife after the trial was not the same person that I married. Unfortunately, she did some things that were backhanded for publicity or for monetary gain and lost my trust. And even though I loved her, um, to me, there is no marriage. There's no relationship without trust. And um, I wish her well. I, I hope she's doing well. I don't have any ill will towards her at all. 
marriages were not compatible because I didn't have any trust in her. She moved on with her life. I moved on with mine. So I've, I've been um, divorced now for the past seven years, which, again, um, when you go through something traumatic like this in your life, you don't expect the life changes that come along with it. And uh, I never foresaw myself getting divorced before this. I mean, we were on a great path in our life. We had everything figured out. Financially, we were doing well. Um, in our marriage, we were doing extremely well. So it, it's unfortunate that that was a, a product of the trial and the publicity and the um, negativity that came of the media's uh, coverage of the trial. This legal, social, and financial aftermath is such a real part of the responsibility that we need to accept when we decide to carry that firearm. It's something that definitely needs to be factored in and, and planned for because it's life-changing, as you said, yeah. and it will continue to change your life. It, it, it's continuing. You'll win 100% of the fights you're not in, right? Absolutely. Well, George, it's been awesome having you on. I, uh, I look forward to reconnecting with you uh, down there in Florida soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Clint. It's been a pleasure. Hello, Tim and Tracy McCain here with McCain's Casillo Carry. And you're watching Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. Wherever you land as far as where the verdict came out with that, right. with that uh, trial, it's important to recognize that we as concealed carriers, as our own family first responders, need to understand what could possibly happen after that physical encounter. Yeah, and that can, legal and that social and that financial aftermath is something that he's still dealing with now. Yeah, we so, can all learn from it. We can all yeah. learn from his situation, no matter which side of the fence you're on, being able to take this uh, situation. Um, it was a terrible, terrible situation that ended up, uh, you know, one person uh, is gone, no longer with us. And the other person is, is pretty much in a, in a, uh, uh, backed into a corner and really can't get out of it. There's really hard, hard way to get out of it because of the public scrutiny. This episode of Meet the Pressers is made possible with the generous support of Saber Red, Power Attack Flashlights, Lee Armory, and EZ2C Targets. Thank you. So we picked up a new supporter for the show, Saber, Saber Red. And you've been an instructor for Saber for how many years? Three. I think uh, going on three years. Okay. You're also a. You're also a law enforcement instructor so you had to get sprayed in the face right yes sir yep law enforcement uh a, they call it asr active uh aerosol subject restraint so oc holy resin capsicum for law enforcement as well as a safari land pepper spray instructor too so three different pepper spray instructor certifications okay yeah i took the civilian instructor course and and when i talked to my trainer i said you know i said because of integrity and everything i think you should spray me in the face and he says <laughs> He's, he says to me, well, first off, I'm not allowed to. And yeah. second off, he pulled me aside. He says, dude, you don't want to do that if you don't have to. <laughs> he says, you can see that it's pretty nasty stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, uh, Sabre is now a supporter of our show. They've uh, offered us some products to show, and I'm going to show off a couple of them. They sent us some of the new electronic devices. Uh, these are stun guns. They're not. They're not tasers or yep. something that shoots a projectile. What did you you call them in? So uh, the the industry term would be CEW or CED. So uh, CEW conducted energy weapon, uh, which is what taser considers theirs. Um, and then uh, CED, which is what New York calls it, because they don't like the word weapon in New York. So it's conducted energy. 
device. Device. Okay. Yeah. My experience with Sabre to this point has been teaching their pepper spray course, which I, I really believe based upon the research that I've done and talking to other professionals that the Sabre is probably the best product out there that's available to us. And I like their curriculum. I thought it was pretty good, pretty good stuff. Yep. As far as using these, these electronic devices, this is something kind of new to me. Basically, as I understood it, it's like find skin that's not yours, put this against it and press the button. And so this one happens to be a flashlight and also press it. Oh, here's that's a flashlight. There we got the flashlight. I don't think this is going to like make someone melt because their eyes are burning from right. this, the, the brightness. But then press that forward and there you go. So, you know, it certainly will take some practice to be able to deploy that. Uh, but pretty interesting. One of the cool things I thought was neat about it if it's deployed so that the thing can go off, there's a safety strap. So I was always like, well, what if someone takes this off of me? Can they use this on me? Well, if I put the safety strap on my arm and I'm pressing the button, if they pull it off me and the strap comes out, it stops working. Yeah. Lots of these are different devices that are stun guns and flashlights. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate for flashlights. I, you know, I always have my, my flashlights on me. Our another sponsor of the show, our PowerTac. So I always have my PowerTac flashlight. Um, the the I love the Saber flashlights. They're they're large in the sense of being able to put it in your pocket. But for a uh, duty bag, great for a duty bag. You know, another uh, force multiplier with, with the uh, the electrical component of it, and uh, you know, using it out on the farm, stuff like that, all the time in a vehicle, et cetera. They, they, a benefit of having that extra uh, protection on top of the flashlight. Hey everybody, I'm John Tigan on Meet the Pressers with Matt Clint. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, and click that little bell to make sure you know when our next episode's uploaded. Until next time, adieu. Meet the Pressers.